We have a poem for a reading this morning. It's a poem called Inventing Sin, Inventing Sin by George Ella Lyon, George Ella Lyon. God signs to us we cannot read. She shouts we take cover. She shrugs and trains leave the tracks. Our schedules we moan, our loved ones. God is fed up. All the oceans she gave us, all the fields, all the acres of steep, seedful forests. And we did what? Invented the great chain of being and the chainsaw. Invented sin. God sees us now gorging ourselves and starving our neighbors, starving ourselves and storing our grain. And she says, I've had it. You cast your trash upon the waters, it's rolling in. You stuck your fine, fine finger into the mystery of life and death. And you did. You learned how to end the world in nothing flat. Now you come crying to your mommy, send us a miracle, prove that you exist. Look at your hand, I say. Listen to your scared heart. Do you have to haul the tide in, sweeten the berries on the vine? I set you down, a miracle among miracles. You want more? It's your turn. You show me. So I want to bring us back to the, for a minute, the poem that Kate read. Did that poem give you some chills? Did it stir something up? Did it touch something in you? Certain there was some laughter at the end, which I think indicates something real was was touched. It's it's a poem that at least for me really did touch something quite deep. And it is our our text for today, our sacred text, if you will. I I can't forget the haunting lines, maybe the angry lines that end this poem. I set you down, a miracle among miracles. You want more. It's your turn. You show me. And frankly, I don't think there's a better reading than this poem to end our five-week sermon series on mapping a life. This sermon series where we've been looking at the consumer culture map and the values that it lifts up to orient our lives. And we've been contrasting that with the spirit map and the values that it lifts up so that we might orient our lives by a different set of values. I think about the poem, and if God is watching us, as this poem suggests, if God is watching us despite some deep frustrations, surely God yearns for us to turn from the consumer culture map to the spirit map to turn from exclusivity and fear and guilt and ego gratification and greed, to turn from those things to hospitality and love, forgiveness, compassion, and gratitude. It's my belief that the consumer culture map creates a world of nonsense. The values on the consumer culture map do not feed the heart's deepest needs. The values on the consumer culture map are like fast food, are like quick fixes and gimmicks. And our spirits cry out for something more that might truly nourish. So in a world of nonsense, First Universalist, I believe, helps us make sense. This faith community helps us make sense. This church offers us a spirit map 
a new way to orient and guide our lives. And today we're digging into greed or gratitude. I've been thinking a lot about greed, and I want to share a couple thoughts on greed. Here's thought number one. Greed is almost impossible to see in yourself. Right? I mean, no one looks in the mirror and says, you greedy jerk. <laughs> like, I see you there hoarding things, I greedy jerk. But it sure is easy to look out in the world to open a newspaper or a magazine or turn on the TV and see Bernie Madoff or top executives at Enron or bankers and CEOs, people on Wall Street or other businesses or anywhere out in the world and start to shake a finger and say disapprovingly at those other greedy people and the greedy system that we're all in. But it's nearly impossible, I think, to see it in ourselves. Listen again to the poet. God sees us now, gorging ourselves and starving our neighbors. I've had it, says God. The poet certainly suggests that God can, however you understand that word, can see greed quite clearly in us, but mostly we're blind to it when it lies in our own hearts. Who among us would say, yep, I'm greedy? I'll just ask that question. I did it at the first service. Like, who, who would put your, like, who wants to put their hand up and say, I'm greedy? Yeah, all right. Oh, man. You got, woo. You got, there's a lot more people here who just own that than at the, at the, at the 930 service. Like, but, but most of you, most of you did kept your hands down. I mean, it's not comfortable to say, yeah, I'm greedy, and uh, it's causing me problems, probably some spiritual problems, and I'm just going to own that. Uh, we don't lead with that. We're not, like, that's, not, that's not what we lead with. We don't necessarily want to think of ourselves as greedy people. And yet, here's the other thing I was reflecting on. How often do I think this to myself, these, these thoughts, almost unconsciously maybe, but these thoughts roll through my head as I move through the world I deserve this, I say to myself. The world owes me. Other people owe me. What I have is not quite enough, quite yet. I deserve just a little bit more, more attention, more money, more things. Maybe just the, the newest iPhone and, and maybe the, the iPad and a few more things. I'm just owning that for myself and I'm not here to blame any of us, but to say in so many ways, greed is this insidious, dangerous condition of the heart. And it is about way more than money and things, although that's the easiest place, maybe, to see it. Maybe we sense that it's about more than, than money. Maybe we can tell in some way that there's other ways greed is in our lives. Maybe in our work lives or in our relationships or marriages, we just tend to feed ourselves and we slowly starve our partners or colleagues of the things they need. We hold tight. We are stingy with praise, stingy with kindness, stingy with attention, with love, and yes, stingy even with money. There's only so much to go around, we think to ourselves. And maybe you're out here in the pew, out there in the pew saying, I don't hold tight, that's not me. 
That's, that's not me at all. And that may be true. But I want to say again that greed is almost impossible to see in yourself, to see in ourselves. So am I just talking to myself up here or are you with me? You're with me. Does this ring true? Is it, does it feel like it's true when you can look out and say, okay, there's a greedy person, there's a business that's greedy, that's CEO, and yet it's really hard to identify the greed operating in our own life. You're with me. Okay, okay. Amen. Amen, says Lou. Yes. It's, it's deceptive because it's so easy to, to see it elsewhere and to say, I'm not that, that's not me. And yet, from a bird's eye view, the God view, if you will, it is clear that collectively, greed is rampant. Listen again to the poet. God is fed up. All the oceans she gave us, all the fields, all the acres of steep, seed-full forests. And we did what? Invented the great chain of being, the chainsaw, invented sin, God says, I've had it. I set you down. A miracle among miracles. You want more? It's your turn. You show me. Greed. Greed might be the sin of taking and taking and taking and wanting more, faster and cheaper, and now with disregard for life and the world. You want more, God says? It's your turn. You show me. You show me. Show what? Show how. Show that we've had a change of heart, that we're that we're reorienting in the world that we're no longer greedy show what we might start by showing some humility we might start by remembering that we didn't make the world we didn't make this day or our lives or the soil or a tree have you ever made a tree right I don't know, I mean, or, 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 or a butterfly, or the oceans. We didn't make the birds, or the moon, or the stars, or the rivers. As my colleague, the Reverend Burton Carley says, we must recognize and accept that we do not own anything, that this world and everything in it is on loan. Our congregations, this congregation... Homes, our homes, the rivers, the mountains, the cities, intimate relationships, even our bodies are not ours to keep but must be returned at the end. We are only the trustees of everything that is entrusted to our care. This is the beginning of wisdom, Burton Carley says, to acknowledge that we do not truly own anything and that we did not make ourselves out of nothing. When I worked at All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we began each service with these modified words from the 118th Psalm. This is indeed a day which God has made. Let us then rejoice and be glad in it, and let us count our many blessings 
Let us be grateful for the capacity to see, feel, hear, and understand. Let us be grateful for the incredible gift of life. And let us be especially grateful for the ties of love which bind us together, giving dignity, meaning, worth, and joy to all of our days. For a long time, that line, the line that says, this is indeed a day which God has made, that line made me cranky. (laughs) Come on now, preach it, preacher. I was saying to myself, that line offends me. That line kind of makes me mad because, sure, I loved the stuff about counting blessings and gratefulness, but I didn't even really believe in God or that God, however, whatever that was, had created the day. That wasn't where I was. It bothered me. But week after week, we said that as a congregation. We said those words together, and slowly something in me changed. I began to understand that God, however you understand that, was something that kept my ego in check and something that kept me grounded. I realized that no matter what I thought about God, the truth was that I definitely did not make the day. (laughs) Not me. I didn't make the earth or any of the fruits or the grains of the field. I didn't make the coffee bean or the oats or the egg that nourished my body. Something greater than me, call it what you will, had made those things, had allowed life and the new day to emerge. Something besides little old Justin had done all of that. This is indeed a day which God has made. The day was a gift. My body, a gift. My breath, a gift. Relationships, a gift. All that I had alone from life itself. And the truth, the even more stunning truth in all of this, is that the world... Life, God, call it whatever you will, the world, life, God, doesn't owe us anything. It doesn't owe us 24-7 internet access that's always on, (laughs) or corner offices, or raises, or drivers who signal properly when they change lanes, (laughs) or a partner that can read our mind and meet our every need. The world doesn't owe us any of those things or anything else. The world doesn't owe us anything. Sit with that. The world doesn't owe us anything. I set you down. A miracle among miracles. You want more? It's your turn. You show me. Show what? Show how. Show a change of heart that we're not greedy, that something has turned in us. We're we're new beings, new people on a new map. Show what? Maybe some gratitude. We owe God life, 
the world, whatever you want to call it, but this much is clear. We owe the world, the world and its abundant miracles, its fiery sunsets, its northern lights, its laughing children, its honeycrisp apples. The fact that we're here at all, we owe the world our gratitude, our praise. The spirit map suggests that we have humility and gratitude at the center of our lives. And gratitude opens the heart to generosity. And we want to be generous people, right? We want to be generous people. If I say, who wants to be known as a generous person, right? More hands. Yeah, a lot more hands. Right? Because at the end of life, when people are gathered around the graveside or in a memorial service, they're not going to say, like, man, that person was, wow, what a greedy bastard. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what they're going to say. They're going to talk about what, what did you give, the time that you shared, the ways you were generous, the ways you were grounded in your life and shared your blessings with other people. We want to be generous people, and gratitude is a road to generosity. Because... When we're really grounded in gratitude, we can remember it's all on loan anyway. It's not ours to keep. It's not ours to begin with. And so we might as well share the blessings, the treasures, the resources. We might as well become generous. Now, it's easy to say, it's easy for me to say up here to all of you, gratitude matters. Gratitude is important. And to just leave it there. But without a regular practice of gratitude, I believe that we'll drift back toward greed. So I want to take the rest of the time this morning to just share with you two practices of gratitude, two things you might do and embrace in your own lives, two practices. Here's the very first one. The first practice is keep a daily gratitude journal. This could be part of your regular journaling. It could be a separate journal. It could be a Word document. It could be a notepad. And it might sound silly, right? And we've heard about a gratitude journal and all this kind of stuff. But try it. Here's the invitation. Try it. And each day in that journal or whatever it is, lift up three things from the day. Lift up three things out of the landscape, the blur of your life, the landscape of your life, three things you are thankful for. People experiences, music, poems, food, three things that you noticed, that you were attentive to, that changed the shape of your day. Here's how this practice works for me in my own life. I regularly journal and pray early in the morning, and I often begin with this line from the E.E. Cummings poem, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. That's the line I have in my head, in my heart. So I begin. I say that out loud or I write it down. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. And then I fill in the blanks. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day. I thank you for my family, for these people I serve, for bringing me to this moment despite hardships and heartbreak. And this practice changes me. And what's true in this practice is that even though giving thanks doesn't deny the hard moments, doesn't deny grief or loss or the despair we, fit, we feel, it changes me. 
Gratitude does not mean we ignore those hardships, but it puts them in a richer landscape. In fact, the Reverend Peter Gomes, the former minister of Harvard's Memorial Chapel, during a Thanksgiving sermon, he encouraged his congregation. He said to them, think of your worst moments, your sorrows, your losses, your sadness, and then remember that you are here, able to remember them. You got through the worst day of your life. You got through the trauma, the trial. You endured the temptation. You survived the bad relationship. You are making your way out of the darkness. Remember these things. Then look to see where you are and give thanks. And I want to say to those of you here today who may be in a dark place, in a troubled place right now, and it feels impossible to know anything else, you have to know beyond your rational mind that you won't be there forever. That there are people in love and a power surrounding you greater than your own ego and grief, and you will arrive on the other side. Part of the spiritual practice of gratitude is to pay attention and remember. To remember where we've been and who has helped us to get where we are. We are not self-made people. So the first practice is to keep a gratitude journal. If you're not into journaling, and some of you may not be, here's your alternate assignment. Write thank you notes. I'm serious. A bunch of them. It's amazing to me what it does in my own heart when I get a handwritten thank you note from someone, when I take the time to write a thank you note. And trust me, there are probably dozens of people in your life who have done little and small things who you owe a debt of gratitude to. Second, so first one is gratitude journal or a bunch of thank you notes. Second, and this is especially for those of you who are struggling in your relationships. This is really for everyone, but I've talked with some of you who are having challenges in your relationships, and I think this is a practice that can help there. It works with a spouse or a partner or a friend, and here's what the practice is. Every day, tell them something you appreciate about them. It seems simple. Author Arlie Hoschild writes, When couples struggle, it is seldom over who does what. Hear this. When couples struggle, it is seldom over who does what. Arlie, she's a a contemporary writer on on relationships in, in this context, this climate, this culture we're living in right now. When they struggle, it's seldom over who does what. Far more often, it is over the giving and receiving of gratitude. The struggle in the contemporary context is the struggle to cultivate gratitude between any two committed partners. John, Dr. John Gottman, a well-known therapist and relationship counselor, says he can predict, often after only three to five minutes of observation, which marriages or partnerships or couples that he, he's observing are likely to flourish and which are likely to flounder. Here's the formula. Here's the formula he uses. He says that for every negative expression, so that's a complaint or a frown or a put-down or an expression of anger, there needs to be about five positive ones. 
catch that ratio, five to one. That's the ratio. He's, he's done a lot of thinking on this. He's done a lot of research on this. He does a lot of couples therapy, and he's, he's not a dumb guy. So I tend to think five to one is a good ratio. The five positive signs are smiles, compliments, laughter, expressions of appreciation, and gratitude. Five to one. This is a practice, not a discipline. I'm not up here telling you I've perfected this. My wife and I and our relationship, we are constantly working on these things because there's the day-to-day grind, right, of like, hey, there's dishes you left out. You didn't do the bed, and who's going to pick up our son from, from daycare, and why is the house a mess? And I thought we had a date night tonight, and you scheduled something else. That's me, usually, not her, <laughs> not her. And all of that stuff is going on, and so it's really easy to lose track of the practice of appreciating one another, the meals we make for one another, the chores we actually do do, the ways we care for one another and our shared lives. You know this in your own life with your friends and partners and spouses. It's a practice. It's a discipline. It is opening your heart to your partner, to really paying attention. What are the ways, large and small, you appreciate them? Have you told them? Have you Hold them. Are you being stingy with your praise? Are you being stingy with your love? Are you being stingy with your time? It's true that gratitude won't fix everything in a relationship, and I'm not saying that. But it will change the landscape of your relationships if you practice gratitude. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line. First practice, gratitude journal. Second practice, call out once a day for the important people, the things you appreciate about them. Bottom line. Practicing gratitude is not one more thing to check off your to-do list. Right? It's not an obligation or a burden. Rather, I think it's an overflowing of love. It's the awakened heart remembering and acknowledging the web of relationships we're in. Acknowledging we had nothing to do with this new day, with the breath that sustains us, with the people that surrounds us, surround us. Practicing gratitude is about saying, this is indeed a day which God has made. Let us then rejoice and be glad in it. And let us count our many blessings. Let us be grateful for the capacity to see and feel and hear and understand. Let us be grateful for the incredible gift of life. And let us be especially grateful for the ties of love which bind us together, giving dignity, meaning, worth, and joy to all of our days. May it be so. And amen.